0: You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Hey, Father Jeffrey, how are you? I'm okay. How about yourself? Doing well. Welcome, patrons. Happy March to all of you. Um, we are going to talk today. The title that I've given this, Father Jeffrey, is "Myths and Mistakes of the Orthodox Church." And oh dear, I know <laughs> for many of us that can be um, it can be uncomfortable, right? Um, there's the sense that we're taught about maybe the perfection of the church. Um, the church can't do wrong. Um, you know, the it's 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 not the church that's wrong, it's the people that, that make mistakes. So yeah, maybe in this episode, I'm hoping we can maybe define what we mean by like mistakes and perfection and stuff like that. But before we get into it, um I want to share a bit about a paper that I wrote for uh Dr. Operwall at the at the Orthodox School of Theology. Mm-hmm. And so, when, when you talk about myth, different people use it in different ways, right? So, some people, when they use the word myth, they mean something that is um, not factually correct and not true. Right. Right? That, that it, there's no truth in this thing, right? Um, whereas, some people will use myth to say, well, it, it is, a, it is a, a story that gives you an identity right? And, uh, and then, and then in that sense, a store, a myth, it doesn't have to be factually correct to still give you an identity, right? So, you know, we would, we would look at say something like Greek mythology, right? And we goes so those stories, uh, those stories, um, give the Greeks a identity, right? They help form that, that group, even though the stories we would say don't have like a factual side to them. Um, So I guess what I want to share with this paper was that I had written about the schism between the East and the West Mm -hmm. and about how, uh, so there's this famous story for the listeners who don't know, there's this famous story of uh, Cardinal Humbert, is that his name, Mm -hmm. Uh, coming from the West as in a papal delegation, comes to Constantinople and then in the middle of the divine liturgy, walks up places a papal bull of excommunication for the Patriarch of Constantinople um, on the altar and then walks out. And then one of the deacons takes the papal bull and runs after them, you know, begging them to take it back. Right. And my argument in this paper, and by the way, listeners, Father Jeffrey doesn't know what, I'm bringing this up for the first time for him. So um, (laughs) this is honest reactions here. (laughs) Uh, my, My argument in the paper was that that narrative serves as the founding myth of a unique Orthodox identity in that it le- it, it lets modern Orthodox people point at a narrative to say, that's the moment when the split happened. And then one of my arguments was that's not actually when the split happened. That is one of many different moments. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know if I did a good job at explaining that, but I'll let you react to that, Father Jeffrey, and then we can take it from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the problem here on the first level is just about the way history works, right? And certainly long after events, we give them an interpretation that they maybe didn't necessarily need to have. Could have, I mean, Events could have unfolded differently thereafter, in which case you know, an event that takes on such great significance as this could have actually disappeared in the annals of history, we would never have talked about it, right? But yeah, I mean, typically today, if you were to ask both Roman Catholics or Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians, you know, when did East and West split, the answer would be 1054, right? That's just, it, it comes immediately to the lips. And, you know, not only is that, entirely misleading and we could talk about you know the centuries and centuries after 1054 and how there was no such thing as a comprehensive east-west uh, split over that period. but you know the, the what the significance of that actual event on that day were you know was, was much less you know great in its ramifications than the way history has interpreted that event to be right so i mean we have this problem generally uh with history or it's not a problem it's just it's the way it works because we can't possibly retell every story uh, at every time you know forever so certain things get get focused on i mean even events of the last you know Few days or weeks would we have the same thing. If I were to tell you, know, if you were to say, "I've been asleep for the last couple of weeks," tell me what's happened. You know, I would pick out certain things, you know, from from that period and and play them up in a way that, you know, in and of themselves, they didn't mean that much, but they kind of come to be emblematic or symbolic, yeah. representative yeah, they, of of the whole thing,
0: right? They, they take on the meaning of maybe some of the other events around them as well
1: right you know uh, you know and maybe you know that's okay you know we have to just admit that's part of the way we tell history that you can you can only tell so much and therefore you know what we're trying to do in and through a certain event is tell a wider story right uh, i mean this is the way any story is told if 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 you were to to write a film or a novel or whatever, you know, you're not giving moment by moment accounts of, of what happens. I mean, there have been attempts to do that kind of thing. Famously, that television program Twenty Four, right, was about you know, showing this in real time or whatever, but it, it fails on some levels, right? Uh, so a, a typical story is told with emblematic events. One short conversation represents a whole relationship one event represents you know a whole character and that sort of thing and so this is this is just part of storytelling right and the scriptures do the same things so i think i the first reaction i have to this is yeah it's it's a real problem uh, but i think we have to just admit that something like this is is going to happen then the question then becomes you know is this a particularly good symbolic moment to choose right um and and wh- how representative was it of you know say a couple hundred years before a couple hundred years after you know that time period and you know could could something else not be a kind of more representative you know event and and there are actually kind of even maybe stricter orthodox christians um you know who take a harder line on the on the west who would say you know what 1054 isn't that significant because really what the problems were like centuries before that, you know, we have earlier schisms around the time mm, of mm. Uh, Patriarch Photius, St. Photius we call him in the East. He's certainly not considered a saint, uh, you know, in the Roman Catholic West. Definitely uh, not. You know, so, uh, you know, and, and so do you know what I mean? So the, 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 almost if you take a harder line on this, you go earlier. And and some would say, well, even, you know, the blessed Augustine. We're not gonna even call him Saint. He's saint Augustine, but I mean that we're gonna demote him somehow for some reason because he gets referred to as blessed. He's less than than fully holy. Uh he's responsible for every Western error. So now we're back into like the fifth century in the West as a kind of departure point. Well could you even go earlier? And you know, and it gets it gets a little bit silly, you know, to to kind of go back and, and people then look at all the diversity of the early church with with a great deal of suspicion right and clearly the only thing that's valid in the early period is anything that is the kind of embryonic version of what byzantine imperial eastern orthodoxy looks like you know by its fullest flowering in 19th century russia for example right so if you trace that direct line of descendants back and there are charts go on the internet you can find right the kind of you know there's the straight tree trunk right which is from the apostles who are kind of doing a proto-type uh, of the Byzantine liturgy, uh, you know, right through to the flourishing and, and full flowering of, of Orthodoxy, you know, in the in Byzantium and then beyond into the third Rome of Russia and, and, and of Moscow and so forth. So, the, and that model then looks. Askance at you know even early liturgies from the second, third century that look a little bit different and already it's going wrong in the Roman Rite or, or whatever. So so there's that tendency to kind of push it earlier and earlier. But you know, history might also ask you to to look a little bit later. What do we do of the fact that you know the moment that papal bull is put onto the altar in Constantinople and there's this falling out, which was typical it happened numerous times over you know several centuries but here becomes the definitive one but you know how did that then affect churches right around the corner let alone you know halfway across you know a shrinking empire by that point let alone outside the boundaries of that empire right where it would have taken decades, centuries, even for the ramifications of that, you know, to be felt. One of the arguments um, to jump ahead a few centuries that um, certain Eastern Catholics make, now this is again, historically debatable. and you can look at the evidence and make a decision for yourself, but is essentially that they were never, the, the, the Eastern Christians who conceive of their history, they were never out of communion with Rome in other words what happened in constantinople in 1054 had never reached that and it's i mean certainly the you can find stories of you know latins traveling to the christian east and communing there was a latin uh monastery in mount athos until the 1700s uh you know the there's the, the, the stories about and and then in the 1400s when there's an attempt to reunite east and west they sit down not as a kind of ecumenical thing of two churches coming together, but they all sit down at the same table as bishops of different places in the West, of different places in the East. So that's 400 years after 1054, that that, you know, the mentality is still, we're part of one thing that we've got this dispute we need to to work on or or whatever. So there's a lot of evidence to say that, you know, what happened on that one day in 1054 is not the definitive moment. Uh, But I guess what people you know ultimately would be saying that by the certainly the 18th century, mid-18th century, the, the line is really, really hard. This is where the you know Greeks are beginning to baptize Latins, you know, into the church. That that suggests a real shift in thinking, right? So by the 1750s, mm-hmm. let's say. So by 1750, you look back and you you reinterpret 1054 in this really you know kind of trenchant way so in the 1700s that is this the rise of you know under the influence of modernity you get this rise of denominations right and by by it's the first time really in the 1700s that orthodox are going to start to think of themselves as a denomination fair enough the best of the denominations maybe the only pure denomination really the only denomination that could call itself church we get all this kind of language happening but but certainly as a denomination, as opposed to the Christians gathered in a particular place, right, principally in, in the Christian East, and so forth, but but by that point, it becomes possible to say we are a separate church, a separate denomination, and and therefore looking back, oh look what happened in 1054 on this day. We will now see this in the light of what we are now experiencing, right? But mm-hmm. you know, had had that gone differently in between, I I suspect we would have lost to history, or at least you know, some footnote in some you know huge tome on on Constantinopolitan Church politics or whatever would be something about what happened on that day, because it's the sort of thing that regularly happened here, there, and everywhere. And in the early church, you know, lots of even the great church fathers that we like to celebrate were regularly in and out of communion with each other because of this kind of business. But, you know, we don't reinterpret those in quite the same way because the consequences weren't as far lasting, of course, except for the, th- the ones that were, like the Oriental or non calcedonian and Orthodox split.
0: Yeah. One of the troubling things about these stories for me, particularly about how modern Orthodox people conceive of these stories is how they can often be used as polemics. Right. So it's not just, well, you know, this is who we are, but it's, it's, this is who we we are because we know we're not those people. And, um, you know the one—the one that obviously comes to mind because we're talking about it now—is that story in 1054 of of the cardinal putting the the bull of excommunication on the altar. Um, but yeah, there are these stories that Orthodox tell themselves to create this identity. One of them being that the Latin West uh, clashed with Gregory Palamas and the Greek East on the question of can it be possible to experience God when indeed it was an inter-Orthodox debate between Barlam and uh, Gregory Palamas. So I guess I have, where I haven't landed is how useful some of these stories are, right? I, I, see them, I see some of these stories militarized by Orthodox Christians.
1: Yeah, and felt viscerally. You know, um, if 1054 isn't the date right, uh, then I think we all know that, uh, you know, the the date that comes uh, in mind for most Orthodox is 1204, right, Uh, where we see the Venetian Crusaders, the Fourth Crusade, uh, ostensibly heading towards the Holy Land uh, as part of this larger, you know, centuries-long project of liberating the Holy Land from the Saracens to enable Christian pilgrimage um, again to to the Holy Land. But those Venetian uh, Fourth Crusaders uh, show up instead in Constantinople and decide this is a wealthy enough place for us to sack and pillage. And and that date you know comes to mind. So if it's not 1054, then certainly the date that seals it is 1204, right? And I've heard you know even very recent converts, Protestants, Evangelicals who become Orthodox, and they take up you know that issue as though it had happened last night, right? And you know the the the, the pain that they, they experience in their body and the, and the emotion with which they talk about that is, is, is quite startling really, right? But how many of them would know the year 1182? Right, twenty years before that, when the sixty thousand Latin Christians who are inhabitants of Constantinople, the same city that twenty years later would be sacked by the Venetians, those sixty thousand were either put to death or expelled in a in a massive massacre, the so-called massacre of the Latin. So if you talk to a Roman Catholic, it's not twelve oh four, they will remember, you know, viscerally. If they remember anything, it's eleven eighty-two, right? So we're very choosy about the dates that we, you know, select. And would 1204 have happened if 1182 hadn't happened? I mean, you can't possibly know a definitive answer to that question, but it's somewhat suggestive, right, that 20 years later, the Venetians took advantage of the fact that Latin Christians had been badly treated by, you know, Eastern Orthodox in Constantinople to, to kind of retaliate in, 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 some way, you know, it's not a very long period of time to, uh, between those two events. So uh, we have to be really careful. I think that, that you know, if, if you're going to use history in this way, um, and it's inevitable as so we have events become emblematic, symbolic, you know, they, they take on the kind of resonance of times before and after them, because we can't possibly recall all of the events, uh, but if we're going to do that, let's at least be honest. Let's take a good, hard look at that. So, if you're going to use 1204, please also remember 1182 and, and try to make sense of that too. Or, you know, even something that happened 50 years before that. So, we need to be uh, a little bit more careful, a little bit more honest and open in our interpretation, and 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 ultimately about the way that you know we're taking that forward, and 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 be open to correction about the kind of interpretation that we overlay you know the i've seen orthodox who suggest well, we could never actually reconcile with roman catholics because of 1204 well okay well if that's an issue then let's bring it forward let's talk about it but let's talk about it properly in context let's see that there was a lot more going on in these events than simply you know people arguing over theology you know the the, the latins did not sack constantinople because of the filioque right um And we need to, I think, widen our perspective a little bit. And I think ultimately, as Orthodox Christians, we have that opportunity. I think when we become Orthodox, we grow up in the Orthodox Church, we're we're growing up in a family that goes back to Abraham, right? It spans time and space. I think to be part of such a covenant family, it makes it incumbent on us to never become so narrowly tribalistic the way a lot of orthodox seem to live that is it's a very weird experience i think to 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 narrow orthodoxy in that way it's supposed to be this the family of god across millennia across every empire and jurisdiction and political framework that's ever been uh you know can we not Allow that to invite us into a wider perspective, a chance to get, you know, to step back once, twice, three times on any event and sort of say, hang on a minute, nothing is quite as simple. I mean, again, the events of yesterday are not that simple. And those are events we we know as well as we can possibly know anything, let alone events of a thousand or more years ago. So I I think we need to be careful with all of these
0: things. I think one way to investigate your as in like your as in like the listener or anybody one way to investigate your thinking about history can be to maybe recount a story from history and to see if you use the words we <laughs> or they right so this happened to me i think i mentioned this in another podcast with in in that class with dr operwall and I remember it was the 1204, we were talking about that, it was that, that session, and I remember using the word us when referring to the, the Byzantines, and, and then it sort of hit me, and I said out loud, wait, why did I say us, right? And, and, and I, I wasn't, I, I had grown up with, with that being part of my story, part of my, part of my mythology that I live out, right? and. Um, and in, in a sense it is us, but in a sense it is not us, right? It was just, it was just a way of seeing that that was what I was doing. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting exercise to look back at history. Maybe you recount some stories, um, like for example, you recount something that happened in world war two, right? Do you say it was the British or do you say it was us, hmm. um, th- things like that. And then to investigate, why do you connect with, with those and not, and not others? and um. Yeah, I, I maybe want to. Can, can I switch gears just a little bit here, Father Jeffrey? Can I just make
1: one comment on that? And I sure, think, go if, ahead. you know, if we're to tr- properly take, you know, Solzhenitsyn's comment about the line of good and evil crossing through every human heart, right? Uh, the that exercise that you've just invited people to do of 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 you know where are you locating us in history that the test is can you actually use that of all sides in all situations because the us ultimately is all human beings you know that's the us that we belong to and if the church is anything it is it's simply the vanguard of the whole of us that has already been received you know at least proleptically into the kingdom of god right Mm -hmm. so you know not to separate ourselves from all of humanity but in order to be the, the 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 kind of forerunners of all of humanity, so when we talk about World War II, as difficult as that is, the US are on both sides, and yeah. that's what's so tragic and sad about this. And so, yeah, let's talk about twelve oh four or ten fifty four or whatever year, but the US we're involved in both sides, and let and that's that would give a a lot of perspective indeed on on the situation.
0: Yeah the the. When somebody draws a circle to exclude some, our job as Orthodox Christians is to draw a larger circle to re-include them. Wonderful. Um, yeah, you can put that on a bumper sticker. Uh,
1: <laughs> the so, big circle people. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. yes, exactly.
0: The, that's what a halo does, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, let's switch gears here a little bit. Okay, so there's a very common, the, the Hymn of the Cross, right? Mm. Oh, Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Grant victory to the Byzantine emperor over the non-Greek speakers. Mm-hmm. And by your cross, through, you know, military might, preserve our country.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we say it today a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's there well, is... Weirdly,
1: nobody ever seems to object to the kind of mistranslation of that, right? Um, because I think yeah. we would be really embarrassed to sing the original words, however. right? Like
0: imagine imagine if we were at Saint Maria's and we, we sang, "Oh Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Grant victory to the emperor over the non-Greek speakers and mm. by our cross preserve your commonwealth."
1: And you were singing that in non-Greek. <laughs>
0: and we're singing that in non-Greek. Like,
1: so where's that, the us? There's the question. Where's the us in that? We are the barbarians that. that Thing yes, yes. We, we are the people who are,
0: it's very interesting because we are actually the people who would be conquered by the power of the cross, which is what we want anyways, isn't exactly.
1: it? Exactly. So it does work, but I don't yeah. think it works in quite the way that the, you know, the one who wrote the hymn intended. Uh, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's funny stuff, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Where's, yes, you know, because we definitely yeah. associate with the Orthodox in that triparian, but, yeah. but we are literally the the barbarians, right? Which means that those who don't speak Greek. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's one example of like, Father Jeffrey, would you call, would you call that a mistake?
1: No, I call it history. You know, I call it life. I call it, you know, the vicissitudes of, of, of just, you know, traversing this, fragile existence that we have, you know, and it's the contingent nature of our whole life, you know, and ultimately it's about saying all these things point us back to one thing, that we are utterly, utterly dependent on God at at, at every moment, because there's nothing, there's no prince or son of man, you know, apart from you know our lord jesus christ who is the prince and the son of man but the you know princes and sons of men it put no trust in them right and that's the reality of of our life and in on all the levels of human history through time you know the you you could never and this is the the real danger i think of of orthodox thinking about history in this way is that we kind of put this holy or blessed cast on something that is you know, contingent and messy and not n- nearly so white and black in terms of, you know, good and evil, you know, and, and, and there's nothing more dangerous than, than that kind of mixing of, of what is divine with what is human and fallen, right? Because then you've given kind of this not only ideological now and politically ideological, but this kind of spiritual import, you know, and so the emperor becomes God himself, or the church becomes in, you know, you can't even begin to critique the church at any point, because all of the people in the church are, are, are perfect, because God is perfect. And those are categories that should never be mixed. Right. And, and, mm. and that's, that's the real, you know, danger. We, if we keep this healthy cri- critical distance, you know, from these things, it's not to say that God himself isn't perfect, that in the incarnation that he took flesh and he lived as a human being and was tempted in all things, but did not sin. We're not taking one thing away from that and that his body ultimately will be made perfect in in the kingdom. But what we're talking about is the historical, you know, realities. And so we can own up to, you know, things that were never perfect. We had an episode about ecumenical councils, and, you know, not everything that went down at an ecumenical council was good, just because it became an ecumenical council. And, and the dogmas that came out of that were our dogmas that that we adhere to, you know, doesn't mean that, they, they somehow take on this divine character and therefore be can, are not able to be criticized uh, for you know, some of the human behaviors and frailties that are exemplified in and through them. Well, the empire of Byzantium is the same thing and every human being through church history, and we say this even about the saints and fathers of the church, we don't take any of them as perfect, right? Uh, we can't quote, just every word from every church father and say this is the last word and that's why you know we have this kind of healthier appreciation i think of of history um and of, of of what the church is like you know living in the world but you know we can fall into the trap i think of this kind of black and white thinking and it's very dangerous indeed
0: yeah I think like it's really important to be able to fully understand how the other side views us. Um, like I, I read one time I was this is a long time ago I, I was uh, 19 or so, and I was writing a paper for a history of Eastern Christianity course that I was taking at the University of Manitoba, and I was you know googling my sources as a good 19 year- old does. And, <laughs> and, um,
1: Wikipedia. There was,
0: yeah, yeah, and I was writing about the schism. And the source that I found was a Roman Catholic website that told the life of Photius. Mm. And, the, and this is for us Orthodox, Saint Photius the Great. Mm-hmm. But this bio is like, you know, he was conceived outside, conceived and born outside of wedlock. You know, he, uh, you know, Whatever it is, like pooped in the baptismal font, you know he's everything about <laughs> that him was one was like, of the
1: worst things you could say about anybody. The story yeah. crops up again and again and again. You know, there's certain yeah. bad emperors did that. And, yes. You know, it's yeah. it, I don't I can't imagine that you know carrying the same amount of weight today that it did seemingly back in the first millennium. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Well, you're sullying the, you know, yeah. It's it's a way of saying your baptism was defiled.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um but then yeah, it just sort of it, it goes on and on I'm like but wait, isn't this guy a saint? Mm. <laughs> um and it kind of helped me it was one of the first instances of opening my eyes to how how other people see the same see see the same figure um in different ways. Uh, another another example was so I grew up in Ontario and I I went to school. This is not a church example, it's an education example. I went to um school here in Ontario. And I remember learning about Louis Riel. And Louis Riel was a rebel who had to be executed because he was, you know, a bad, a bad guy doing revolution out there in Manitoba. Then, you know, I go to Manitoba and I'm there for a while and February rolls around and then we have a day off from school. I say, Oh, why do we have a day off from school? And they said, it's Louis Riel day. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) The Louis Riel, yeah, I'm like, isn't he a bad guy? <laughs> um, but in Manitoba, he's a he's a hero of the people. So um, that's that was another example of selective history.
1: Yeah, and there are kind of a couple of responses we could have to those kinds of things because you know you could multiply that ten thousand times very easily in in church history and and beyond. You know, so what does that mean? Does that mean that we retreat to a camp? with all the other people who think like we do. And we just sort of say, you know, those people are beyond redemption who think otherwise. Right. Uh, and that has largely been a, an Orthodox approach to say dialogue with, with Roman Catholics, because, you know, how can we even begin to have a conversation with people who think so wrongly about history in, in these terms, or in learning about these things, could we instead say, Hmm, Hmm, Hang on a moment. Maybe there's more to this than we thought. Maybe this is a real opportunity for conversation, for dialogue, to find out why it is that when this other group of people think about history, even some of the same events, but often different events around the same time, um, it, and then make those emblematic or symbolic of, of a whole thing, you know, maybe there's something there that it's worth us hearing, at least that different perspective. It's not a suggestion that we have to give up, you know, what we think about Saint Photius or about 1054 or about 1204, or any of these, you know, kind of things. But it is a suggestion to say we can't necessarily naively proclaim something as though we're indisputed, you know, truth, because there is no indisputed truth in history. Everything is hermeneutic. Everything is interpreted, uh, selected, chosen, you know, tailored. Becomes emblematic, you know, takes on this, this kind of greater meaning and so forth. So we have to recognize the process that we've gone through and what an opportunity it would be to draw together with others to, to kind of talk about some of those things. And it, again, it goes right right down the line. All the things that we we have these prejudices and stereotypes over certain issues. And it gets to the point where it's unfathomable to us that other people even believe differently. How could you possibly think the Pope is infallible, right? You know, where does that come from? That's a sign of insanity, and yet there's a billion and a half Catholics in the world who at least, you know, ostensibly believe that in a certain capacity, speaking in a certain way, the Pope can speak on behalf of the infallible Church. Well, you know, are we going to even talk about that, or are we just going to say, clearly these people are just insane, and we'll just keep to ourselves, right? I don't think it's a very healthy thing to draw narrower and narrower circles, because what ends up happening you know, even within orthodoxy, is there are certain people who aren't happy with the way most orthodox think about these things. And they draw their own smaller circle, and sometimes even break communion and become a smaller circle. And then they're not happy with those people. And so we have a whole pile of even smaller and smaller circles until it gets down to it's just you, right? Or me. And, you know, the the only church and interpretation of history that we're happy with is the one that's in our own heads, right? And, Something tells me that's not what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is all about. He did not come and do all those things just for me. Uh, I think that would be a fairly narcissistic interpretation of things. Yeah, so when somebody draws
0: a circle to exclude you, your job is to draw an even bigger circle to include them.
1: Yeah, at least at that level of dialogue and and, and interrogating the interpretive process. I would like to hear why it is that, you know, say in this particular, particular discussion about, you know, why Roman Catholics interpret, you know, certain events, you know, the way they do. In fact, you know, anybody I've ever talked to. Precisely about something like 1204. There aren't very many Roman Catholics who celebrate that, right? It's not really considered a high and sterling moment of, of medieval Catholicism, right? Um, but they'll, you know, they'll actually tell you a story about how those Venetians were pretty pesky and annoying to the West, let alone to to the East, right? So there wasn't really a happy relationship to begin with. So could they really be viewed as the whole of the Western church acting, you know, in concert on that day? You know, that's debatable, you know, because they were already causing problems in the West. So, uh, you know, there's just more to be learned in some of these stories. And perhaps we can come to something closer, uh, you know, in terms of relationship and understanding through this process of drawing circles of dialogue at least
0: well that's about it for today everybody um i think lent is fast approaching at the time, Ha-ha. fast, fast so... approaching
1: that's oh funny. man
0: i <laughs> i am a funny guy um we're gonna start a orthodox comedy channel soon so. okay thank you very much father jeffrey and thank you patrons Well, that does it for another episode of the private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. Thank you again for all your support. Please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions. Father Jeffrey and I read them all. Looking forward to having you back soon.